Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, here we are at episode 7. Episode 7 today we're talking to Australian guitarist Peter Northcote, probably one of the most recorded guitarists in Australia. Now before we get to the interview with Peter, just a bit of news. We are still running our Play On Our Track, Get On Our Show campaign. The, uh, the music you can hear in the background right now is a backing track which you can download for free at guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com. Record yourself playing over it and send it to us. Um, there's full details on our blog site. Again, that's guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com. Libson, L-I-B-S-Y-N. That's how you do it. Or just go to our Facebook page. That's probably an easy way to do it. In addition to Facebook, we're also on Instagram. You can check us out there and you can download our podcasts for free um, from iTunes or Stitcher or at that blog page again, guitarspeakpodcast.lipson.com. All right. Hey, we've got a giveaway as well, which is uh, thanks to Peter Northcote. I've got three of Peter's solo albums. And uh, again, on our Facebook page, if you go there, you'll find details of how um, you can win one copy of those for your very self. So, talking about Peter, he is a, an amazing guitar player. I've, I've seen him um, quite a few times and, uh, when, when I started the podcast. Uh, he was one of the top names. I thought I'd love to uh, meet him and, and talk about his career. As I mentioned at the start of the show, he's, he'd have to be one of the most recorded guitarists in, in Australian history. He's, he's played on countless sessions. In fact, when I turned up to his um, home studio in, in, um, in central Sydney, uh, he was working on a jingle um, even then as I turned up. So he's played lots of jingles, lots of ads, heaps of albums. And he's been a touring guitar player with such uh, names as uh, Dragon, Dale Braithwaite, Margaret Earlrich, um, so many. The Monkeys, he actually toured with the Monkeys, uh, in addition to um, doing some great solo gigs as well. And many, many more artists besides. Oh, the Angels. Did I mention the Angels? Doc Deason's Angels. We, we talk about that in the interview as well. Um, so, before I speak to Peter, we should hear some of his great playing. Here's a couple of excerpts from his latest solo album called Slow Love. First track you're going to hear a bit of is the title track. And the next track is a piece called I'll Give You What You Want. Thank you. 
Peter Northcott, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Great. Looking great. forward to it. Thanks for having me. Um, let's go right back to the start. When did you start playing the guitar? I started playing when I was nine years old. Apparently, I um, hassled my mum and dad for a guitar. Uh, we were playing tennis. My brother and I were playing tennis at the time. Mum uh, said, all right, if we buy you a guitar, you're going to take lessons, so you're going to do it properly. And we took uh, lessons from a guy up the road whose name was, believe it or not, John Williams. Okay. Any one um, of the famous John Williams? No, unfortunately not, no. He was a club musician who, um, who um, just did club gigs, you know, yeah, and taught right. on the side like yep. they did in those days. And um, So we took six months' worth of lessons, and then Mum and Dad said, look, we can't afford both. You mm -hmm. either choose guitar or tennis. Tony took tennis, I chose guitar. There you and go. The rest is history. Fantastic. <laughs> And you ended up hooking up with, um, was it Vince Lombardi? For, Vince for Lombardo, lessons? yeah. When did you start with oh, him? Oh, God. I was, well, see, after the six months worth of lessons, we stopped because they just couldn't afford both and all that. Yeah. So um, we, um, I just kept playing. And I think by the time I was 11, mum could see that I was really into it. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, she took me to a place over at Rockdale where they had a place called Bramman's Music Studios, yeah. which eventually the Lombardos bought out. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, I took lessons there from a number of different teachers, but uh, the big influence was Vince, yeah, Vince right. Lombardo, because he uh, really, you know, he introduced me to rock music. Yeah, you know, right. at 11 years old, Santana okay. and, and uh, you know, Deep, Flo Deep Purple and all those sorts of things, which was just at that time. We're yeah. talking, so I was born in 1960, so we're talking okay. 71, yep. 72, so it was just happening at Great the time. Great era, yeah. yeah. Cool. And so um, he used to get me, he saw the potential in me as well, and he would, he gave me a job on Saturday afternoons being what they called a junior teacher, okay. whereby I would take the first 15 minutes of the lesson of the students uh, okay. and see what they'd done, and then he'd come in and do the rest. Nice. So it was a really, really great experience. Um, in those days, I was taking... Uh, I was doing everything. I was doing musicianship classes. I was doing AMEB. I was doing guitar. I was doing classical guitar. I was yeah. doing singing. Um, all that 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 didn't turn out real well, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was a really amazing time. So I did that for until I was about fourteen, I guess, over okay. there. Yeah. Um, and then um, yeah. Cool. Uh, funny you mentioned Vince because I was talking to Michael Dolce the other day, and he met Vince. He was sort of young adult years, but Vince was a great. Um, inspiration to him as well. Oh, he was amazing. Yeah. Funny story about that is that, yeah. <laughs> see my, my Ibanez gem, the, yeah. the one that I use mostly, is uh, it got stolen. Okay. It got stolen and then one day I get a, we're talking, well, got to be, uh, got to be 15 years ago now. Right. Uh, Michael Dolce rang, rang me up and said, Peter, somebody's just called me about selling <laughs> an Ibanez gem. For real. Yeah. Wow. And he, he said he's on his way down here. And I bolted in the car, yeah. got there with yep. a photo of it and everything. Uh -huh. I thought, oh, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> I'd been gone for about three months. Okay. Anyway, I've gone out the back. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael's said, don't come out. We'll just check him out as he comes. So anyway, we see him come across the road. Yep. I've gone in and called the police. And I'm out in the back room, you know, and Michael's got the guitar. So I've called the police. We're waiting for the police to come. Yeah. Michael's got the guitar and he's doing like, you know, okay, mate. Yeah, look, I'll just check it out. <laughs> and he goes. <laughs> all the way up on every string. <laughs> just, to, just to see if the guitar was all right. So um, it, we eventually, eventually I, I got the guitar back, the police. You know, came along. So it was a funny story. Michael was very instrumental in me getting nice. my guitar back. Yeah. Thanks, Dolce. <laughs> Classic. 
Fantastic. Wow. And you, um, so you started playing gigs pretty young You were, when you were still at school? Yeah, I was doing, um, uh, well, I was doing things like shopping centres and um, uh, nursing homes with a, with a young girl. And we used to sing Carpenter songs and, okay. and all that sort of stuff. I'd, I'd sing and strum and she'd do the same thing. So we had a little bit of a duo going. And then when I was about 14 or 15, mm-hmm. the, um, John Bramban, who was the son of the woman that owned the place, yep. was a drummer. Okay. And he married a keyboard player teacher at the, at the school as well. Yeah. And they got me in their band playing bass and guitar to oh, do okay. wedding receptions. Right. So I was doing wedding receptions every weekend. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, and um, it, was, it was fantastic. So we do lots of those sorts of gigs. Um, and then eventually I got onto a, uh, I think it was 15 years old, and it was my first tour with Jamie Redfern. Oh, okay. Jamie Redfern was, was big at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I did a tour, and mum and dad let me go. Wow. And it was. So how old were we? 15? 15. Okay. And we did two weeks away. I mean, it was, you know, it was well organised and all yeah. that. It was all the club tours of the country town, New South Wales, and. Uh, Victoria, I think it was. So we did two weeks away. I slept in the back of the, or, you know, rode in the back of the van. Uh-huh. Um, but that was a really, really good experience playing in a band that was touring and, and stuff. And then from then I was, I'd, I'd left school really early mm-hmm. and uh, left home really early. Okay. Like 15, 16. And I started playing in cover bands and, and doing all that sort of stuff. I mean, I was doing... At that stage, I just had to get out of home, and I wanted to do with you know music, and the yeah. parents didn't agree with it, and okay. you know I was just trying to live some life, I guess. Yeah, right. I was doing any sort of job I could. I was working in a music shop in um, in the city on the corner of Elizabeth and Liverpool, and okay. it was right on the corner there, opposite Mark Foy's, and that's where I met people like Phil and Tommy Emmanuel, okay, yep. and all the great guitar players, some amazing players that that uh, would pop in there because it's mostly an acoustic guitar shop. Okay, and I'd yep. be there by myself. He, the guy that owned it wasn't even a guitar player, but he he trusted me enough, and so I worked there, met a lot of great players, um, and then I left that and I started, you know, doing silly jobs like working in um, painting cranes in these big factories, <laughs> you know, just for anything for money so yeah, I could yeah. keep playing. Yep. Uh, I was always teaching guitar. I taught out at a place called Rock Music at Bankstown. Yeah. Uh, I was. <laughs> I don't say this very often, but I. Some people know it that I was selling paintings door to door, pretending okay. they were mine. But it was really just a, <laughs> a bunch of people would meet up at three o'clock in the afternoon and and pick up these paintings. This one guy had done, you know, tree, 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 house, 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 <laughs> fence, fence, fence. And we'd go around travelling, you know, being travelling musicians, yeah. travelling um, artists, <laughs> saying we've done, you know, this this artwork, and and people would let us very rarely, but people would let us in until we found out that some some of the girls were pretending they were deaf and dumb. Okay, okay. So we got onto that. I mean, I've done some rotten things, but it was it was an experience, and it was it was an amazing time because I was doing the still the club gigs. Yeah. Making money from music was was a lot of teaching mm-hmm. and anything else I could get. Right. Uh, until I was about uh, maybe 19 or 20. And then at 20, I got a, a job on a cruise ship. And I worked on cruise ships for eight months in the band. Yep. And that's another funny story. The, the job description in the paper was uh, singer slash guitarist must be able to read charts for cruise ship. Uh-huh. So I went along for the job, and all the guys that were before me were obviously, you know, 
they could strum and they could sing really well. Yeah. And I was a pretty <laughs> singer. I mean, I could do it, but I wasn't great at it. It wasn't my focus. Yeah. But I could read all the charts. Right. And so I got the gig. Uh-huh. <laughs> and at the end of every cruise, they would have a questionnaire. How was your accommodation? How was your food? How was your uh, entertainment? How was the, you know. And about 50% of them said, great band, sack the singer. <laughs> <laughs> so this is after the first cruise, first two weeks. So they kept me on. Yeah. And they got another keyboard player and we shared this, the singing. But yeah, uh, yeah I did. I ended up doing that for eight months and that was really good. Cool. I think after that I got back and I was doing um, lots and lots of cover bands. Yeah. And it was the most, I still doing lots of teaching. Mm-hmm. There was one, at one stage in my early 20s where I went, i got to stop teaching. I don't want to teach anymore because most of the students didn't want to learn. Yeah. You know, it was pretty horrible. Sure. I mean, it was a great way to do something involved in music to make some money, but it was dragging me down. I thought, you know, if I want to focus on one area in my life, it's not going to be teaching. Yeah, sure. So um, I wasn't a very good teacher. I mean, I, I still teach now, but I do one-off lessons, which are an hour of intensive stuff. Yeah, okay. And people walk away with, you know, um, a lifetime's work. <coughs> yeah. But... Um, so yeah, it led. It, it it was a good way to make some money, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I wanted to focus on being a session player sure. and a player. Yeah, you know. And so I made the conscious decision to stop teaching. And I literally stopped and starved for a couple of months. Lived with my brother, and you know he would lend me packets of cigarettes and lend me money for rent and all that sort of stuff. So it was um, it was uh, a formative time. Yeah, right. For, for me to focus on what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in there you you made the break, well, maybe not the break, from covers to working with original artists. Do you, do, do you remember your first kind of big yeah. step there? Yeah, so I was always, you know, trying original bands and all that sort of stuff. Nothing yeah. ever really grabbed me because I, they just didn't seem like... Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to sound wrong, but they just weren't great enough players. Sure. They weren't good enough players. They were, they were more... Um, you know, jammers. Right. And I really wanted to play with some really good players. So you know, I thought, well, the way that to do that is to play with, you know, good artists. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, I think, uh, I got a job with uh, Richard Clapton at the time. Okay. And did a couple of, couple of years with him. Yeah. And that was probably mid-80s. Okay. And then I, you know, you would, you would go on tour. And, and at that time is when I started doing session work. Okay, yeah. So um, I was working... Uh, doing jingles all day and uh, I remember Jim Kelly taking me along to my first session I asked him if I could come along and see a session oh, okay. we're talking about early mid late mid 80s yeah right so and Jim was doing a lot of stuff oh he was he? doing it all yeah and it was a most amazing thing because I walked into 301 in, in uh, Castle Ray Street yeah yeah and um, I saw two guitar players drummer percussion uh, bass player, two keyboard players, and a, like a 16, 17, 18 piece orchestra, mm-hmm. strings and horns. And and so it was an amazing experience to see what it was. And as a result, I ended up doing a lot of those gigs. Yeah, right. It was really, really beautiful. But Jim was the most amazing inspiration to me. You know, he was such a. And same with Tommy Emmanuel, because mm-hmm. they were just, they were in it, yeah, doing it at yeah, the right. time. Yeah. Tommy would always recommend me after, like, I'm actually before that, and we're talking about early 80s, Tommy recommended me for Doug Parkinson's band. Oh, okay. Because so he was, he was he in was Doug's band. Seat for that, yeah. And then after I did that, Tommy recommended me for um, the Bushwhackers. Okay. And after I'd done that, 
Tommy recommended me for Dragon. There you go. So it was he was such an amazing, uh, not only an inspiration, but a, a supporter of what I did. Yeah. Because he would see me play every week at the All Nations Club in the Cross and, okay. and all those places. So Shadows and... Um, so yeah, so I did all those sorts of gigs and that led on to more um, Dragon for six years. Okay. Um, uh, Daryl Braithwaite, uh, Margaret Ehrlich, uh, and then on and we would do the midday show bands and we would do um, uh, lots of things like Tom Jones specials and Shania okay. Twain and all that. So, yeah. so there'd be little stabs of things going on. So that led me up into the, the 90s. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. So probably... Probably early '90s. That's when a lot of digital recording was starting to become a little more ubiquitous. Um, remember the Atari Falcon, and it went from there. Did that change the nature of session work for you? Were you still uh, getting lots of work? It was incredible. You know, like we, because I saw it. I started from when it was tape. Yeah, sure. You know, twenty-four inch, twenty-four track, two-inch tape. Yeah. And I saw it change for. I saw it change to. You know, computers syncing up via MTC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? And, so and that. Yeah, I saw it change from that, from, from you know, Commodore 64s, which would only play one note at a time. Yeah. Actually, I bought a Commodore 64 with Dr. T, which was one note at a time sequencer. Oh, okay, okay. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so Clive Harrison got me the sessions. He was, I was playing in a band with him in Newcastle in the mid-80s, mid and he was really supportive too. Clive Harrison's a bass player, used to play with... Uh, Little River Band, Richard okay. Clapton, all okay. that. So he was doing all the sessions back cool. then. And so, yeah, I saw it change from that to uh, ADATs, then to computer, mm-hmm. then back to tape. Okay. <laughs> I've seen it change the digital tape, for you know, quarter-inch 40 yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's that. interesting. I saw somebody a <laughs> couple, couple of years ago said they were, they were getting rid of some of their equipment. They threw out two... Um, uh, Fair lights. Okay. Threw them out. Wow. You know, just That's threw them out. Like, and, nice. and uh, they were offering me uh, a, a sort of quarter inch, um, forty-two track digital Sony machine for a hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's just <laughs> so I've seen it change, and, and I've managed to work through it all, and it's been really good. I mean, yeah. I, lo- I love the way that we record now. It's interesting though. I've just been recording with some people, and um, it. it it's something that I've I, I've retained is that I like to record from the beginning of a song and play to the end. Okay. You know, even if I don't get it right, I just want to play those bits. I don't want to, and I don't want to copy a chorus and put it on the same second chorus. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's because it's always going to feel different. There's going to be a bit of bit more reality going on. But the guy, younger guys that I work with, they just copy. Let's start at the chorus. Yeah. Okay. Let's start at this part, and, yeah. and they just do bits. It's interesting the hangover from playing on tape and being able to play correct first mm. go yeah. is, has uh, led me to that. And I love doing that. I still do it now. Yeah. If I record something here, I will start at the beginning and try and get a part together. Okay. Yeah. So you still treat it like a tape machine, essentially? Many, many ways. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love to be able to cut up and screw around with tracks, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yep, but it's been an interesting transition too. I mean, I've always kept up with it as far as, you know, um, technology. I've always kept up with it. And it's fa- same with my gear, you know, working with the Axe effects and, and, and equipment. I've always been at the top of the, trying to keep at the top of what's going on. Okay, mm. yep. So amidst all the session work, you're still doing lots of gigs as well. Lots of gigs. Lots of things. But I was doing sessions. See, back in those days, I was doing like five three to five, sometimes 10 sessions a day. Wow. It was insane. Wow. It was incredible time. And it uh-huh. was, it was, 
it was day in, day out. You would roll up, you'd wake up early and you would go to the studio, you'd have a coffee and then you would just record mm -hmm. all day. And then you'd get called. I had a full-time um, roadie. Okay. And I had him for oh, probably five or six years. Wow. And he would take my gear to the first set. He'd come and pick me up. Yeah. Had strings changed for the for the session. He would um, look after all my gear. He'd roll me up to the first session. He'd go and take the second rig to the other session. I'd meet him there. He'd come back and pick this, this gear up. And it was just a great scene. And then live gigs, he'd help me at the live gigs and all that. Okay. But that's what was going on in yeah, those days. It was such, yeah. Wow. Yeah. When did you... Um, when you start playing with Doc Neeson and uh, so in the iteration. mid it would have been mid two thousands. Okay. Yep. Uh, I got a call from uh, the manager. Actually, Doc gave me a call many uh, about two years prior to that. Yep. And he said, "Look, I want to start playing again because I've left them the mm -hmm. Brewsters." And, yep. and he said, "Come up to the um, mountains." And I went up to the mountains and to his house, and we had a jam with a bunch of guys, and they were it was terrible. <laughs> it was just horrible. Right. Just horrible. So um, I, he's, he rang me while I was driving home from the mountains and I said, mate, the best thing you can do is get back with the old guys and go and do the clubs, mm -hmm. make some money. But he said, no, I'm not going not gonna to go that way. So that's when we, we, um, he's, he met up with uh, David Lowy and we ended up doing Doc Neeson's Angels and we okay. went to the Bahamas and recorded an album over yeah. there. We were flying in uh, Learjets everywhere and yeah. it was an amazing time. Wow. And we did that for about two and a half, three years. Okay. Um, recorded an album with Terry Manning, Manning from uh, Compass Point Studios, okay. which is, you know, um, Fleetwood Mac, Beach Boys, wow. you name awesome. it. Nine Inch Nails, he produced everybody. So that was really inter interesting experience too. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Um, I remember being at your album launch. For, I think it was Conditions Apply. Was that oh your, god, was that your first record. Yeah, that'd be right. the basement. Yeah, yeah. that would and have been about two thousand, whatever, or something. Uh, anyway, somewhere around there. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I think you were working with Doc at that stage because they were in the crowd. That's right. And um, and I love this moment. They they jump up and that's right. They congratulate you on your album and um and then you guys smashed out a few tunes. Yeah. I can't remember what you did. It might have been. Am I ever going to see your face? Maybe. <laughs> With BVs, maybe um, Shadow Boxer. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But it was cool. And well, it, that would have been 2004. Okay. Or something like that. Yeah. There you go. And um, I mean, it's obviously your gig, but it just struck me. You, you weren't, um, it wasn't just another sideman gig. You know, Doc obviously held you in a, yeah. a lot of affection. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was a beautiful man. I loved him. He was, he was, he was a beautiful nut. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, Let's let's talk a bit about your solo career. So you've had, um, amongst all this work, all this busy work, you've you've released. I think it's four albums. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And um, they seem to be a real um, uh, amalgamation of all your influences. So obviously, playing sessions, your background growing up, you've you've absorbed a lot of different kind of music. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of rock going on in those records, but yeah. um, some blues, some jazz stuff. The the chillax was very yeah. sort of acid jazz kind of yeah up. yeah that was a bit packed with any influence stuff yeah yeah cool. I did a jazz course back in the early 80s, um, which was the, the jazz diploma course at the conservatorium. Um, and, but 
uh, it wasn't my desire wasn't jazz i never really loved it was you know i'd, uh-huh. I'd get on the train and and start listening to charlie park and by the time i'd get 10 minutes in i'd be listening to van halen so it, I'm really the the beauty about working uh, uh, learning jazz was that I wanted to apply the information mm-hmm. to my rock soloing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so understanding uh, every degree of the scale and understanding what it does and how it colours. Okay. And yeah. being able to choose that sound, yeah. that scale degree to to create an emotion. Sure. Um, so uh, with uh, my albums, yeah, they they are varied and and um, diverse. Uh, although not uh, focused, if you yeah, know what I mean, you sure. know that because that's that's I am uh, I am all those influences. I love my rock playing. I love to play some ballads. I love acoustic guitar. Yeah, yeah. You know, mandolin. All those all those sorts of things. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's a it's a good thing. But the conditions apply was the first one. That was an amalgamation of a whole bunch of tracks that I just recorded with people over the uh, years. Okay, okay. Uh, in two thousand, I sh- I started a studio with Chad Wackerman, the drummer. Okay. In Is St. Peter's. PNG? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Northgate Guitar Studio. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, there you go. But Chad and I shared it for the first three years okay. until he went back to the States and yeah. then I took it over. Okay. And I only closed it down two years ago simply because it was the guy that was I was leasing off wanted to get out and I just, he said, do you want the lease? And I went, no bloody way. Right. I have no desire to have so I've moved everything back here okay. into my home now and it's it's um it's worked a lot better. I mean I don't shower very much but it's uh it's good here. It's really good. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So um Yeah, the albums I mean I you know, like you, you can spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and never make anything back from your recordings. Sure. Which you know, I think the the first album Conditions Apply, I did make my money back and I am still selling and that one did make me some money. Everything else it's I did. Uh, I did. Con- um, Point Extra Genius, Genius Sex Act, which was a, a concept album. Okay. And it's pretty pungent. Okay. In many ways, yeah. lyrically, um, um, the concept is pretty bent, and the music is pretty full on. But it, it you know, if you listen to it in one listen, like anything, if you listen to it in one setting, you kind of yeah, there's a lot of notes, and it makes you know it's fun. Mm-hmm. But when you really get into it, because I spent is getting that right uh-huh. so there is a lot of stuff in there and um some people come up to me and they say man that's still my favorite album okay out yeah. of anything that sure. they've heard. so so when you listen to it and you get it over and over again there is there is a lot of substance to it yeah substance to it it also allowed me to tour japan we did a um two-week tour of japan okay with that album yeah. i won um uh, Music Oz Instrumentalist of the Year in 2008, seven, whatever it was. Okay. And um, that also led me on to being on the um, the board of, uh, I'm an ambassador and what they call a legend of the uh, uh, Music Oz Australian Independent Music Awards. Okay. So that's good.
you know, doing albums is, is something that I still record. I still keep doing my own stuff. And it's something that I know that I'm not going to make any money out of, but it's something that I have to do. And I say that to everybody, you know, you don't, you don't, music, selling music is over. Nobody's going to buy music anymore. Mm. There's no point. Sure. So you, you just got to do it because you love to do it. And you never know what might happen, whether mm. it gets placed in a movie or whatever. Yeah. But um, it's, it's an interesting interesting situation because I've got boxes of CDs I don't I'm never going to make another CD okay. and I I tell people never to bother making CDs it's mm -hmm. just a waste of time sure so Slow Love I think that was your last that one that was the last one a couple yeah. of years ago so that's all digital that's just a purely digital release no I actually did print some okay and uh, yeah, the, I mean having the CDs when, at my live gigs is always great but sure. it's rare that I do solo gigs and oh live um, original gigs anymore okay I might slot something in yep. but it's uh yeah, yeah, sure. But it's all you know. It's all available. I've, I, I keep trying different ways. I did a, 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 a program a little while ago called a song a week, mm -hmm. and um, I would release a song with a story and a photograph, and you could download the lot um, of what the song was about with the lyrics, and. Um, that was that was a good little thing to do, you know. Of course, but you know, what are you going to make a dollar sixty nine on a song? Yeah, sure. You know. Yeah. Do you do much um, other writing? Like, have you got publishing credits? Ah, uh, yes. Some I've, of the artists you've worked with. Yeah, in the yes, I've written with lots of people. But one of the best things I ever did was uh, in the early, actually late eighties, early nineties. Um, I met up with a guy called uh, Stuart Livingston, who was the head of Zomba music in Australia. Okay. Yeah. And um, Zomba of course was bought out by BMG, but Zomba focused on an area of production music, library music. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I did I think I've done about a dozen albums. Okay. They have yep. been the best thing I've ever done. It's yep. made me money while I was sleeping. Um, and it still makes me money. I focused on two areas. One was rock guitar, which is like the Satriani Steve Vai sort of yeah, area for sports programs. Okay, and they're very that way orientated. Yeah, and the other one was acoustic guitar for lifestyle programs because that's oh, when okay. lifestyle music, lifestyle programs started to come into fashion. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, the acoustic guitar ones have done me really, really well. Yeah, great. Uh, and it's not just one song. You know, it's it's all different styles of acoustic guitar and doubles and shakers in them, and mm -hmm. you know, so it's it's usable stuff. Yeah, cool. But that's that's been a great way to make money, you know, having money burning while you're sleeping. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really important and um it's again now we're at a stage where it's saturated. Yeah. There's no point in really focusing on that area anymore. Okay. For me. That's already out there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so much anybody can record, you know, uh, on anything. Mm. Music's really not that important to people anymore. There's so much of it, you know, we're saturated with it. Mm. All right. Hey, um, I'd like to talk about guitars. Yes. Now, walking in here and having seen you play, mm. I'm not sure where to start. Let's... <laughs> There's a fair few out there, isn't there? <laughs> what, what, was your first, um, what was your first guitar? My first guitar when I was a kid was a uh, Rivera. No, Riviera. Oh, yeah, yeah. A Riviera yeah. acoustic. Acoustic, yeah. $20. Fantastic. Uh, that served me well. And then I got a Valencia, <laughs> Valencia like a 335 copy. That was a cracker. Uh -huh. And then a Strat copy. And then, I mean, like, you know, I left home early, so I had no money. Yeah. So yeah. I always had cheap guitars. I remember having a, I think it was a Sigma or something like that. And I put EMG pickups in it in the okay. early, in late 70s, early 80s. And that served me really well for a while. And then when I started working with Richard Clapton, 
Oh no, I got the uh, an ES one seven five a nineteen fifty six, which Tommy used to own. Okay. And I've still got that nineteen fifty six one seven five, which is a beautiful guitar, and that I played with um, Stevie Wright, and you'll see a clip on YouTube of me playing it on Okay Hey Hey Saturday. Um, but then I I got into um, I got a ESP, which did me really well. ESP, you know, like a um, or th neck through body, which had EMGs in it okay. as well, because yep. they were the hip thing back then. Yeah, yeah. And that really, really served me well. It got me all through uh, Richard Clapton, um, uh, Daryl Braithwaite, Dragon, uh, Margaret Ehrlich, and and all those other people. Mm -hmm. It just it served me really well. And then when I started to make some money, <laughs> yeah, I just went nuts. Uh -huh. You know, doing sessions, I was just buying guitar. I think I'm up to about sixty something now. Wow. So it's it's. It's a beautiful obsession. Uh, last week I bought three guitars. You know, so it's just... My main guitars are... Yep. Uh, it's always been my my favourite is the Ibanez Gem. Mm -hmm. And it's beaten up, as you can see. It's a sh it's an absolute mess. But yeah, what, what year is that? What that's year that? a, one of the first ones. So I think it's a 98. Okay. Um, nice and out of tune. <laughs> um, but it's... it's uh, it's just got everything, and if I, you know, if I need to travel and I want it, depending on the gig, I'll, I will always just take this because it can give me a great strat sound. Yep. It'll give me a great jazz sound. It'll mm -hmm. give me a great rock sound, and it's got the, it's got the tremolo, nice. um, whammy arm, which allows me to do a whole bunch of things. So it's a really, really versatile guitar. You know, people, people listen with their eyes. And people come along and they say, "Oh, mate, why don't you put that down and put pick up the Les Paul?" Little they know that the Les Paul's pretty ordinary. The one, the one okay. that I'd have sitting there was pretty yeah. ordinary and really couldn't do do much at all. Right. But um, mate, it's kept me working for years, yeah. decades, in fact. You know, uh -huh. so it's a beautiful guitar. I love it. Uh, I've recently been putting together a lot of guitars from uh, parts. Uh, I've got two MJTs, okay, yeah, which are made in America, and I just get the bodies and the bits and I put necks on them and put parts on them. I'm loving. Absolutely loving slider pickups. Okay. And he's yeah, yeah. a guy, uh, Rod McQueen, and he's out in Hurstville. Yeah. And he's just making these amazing pickups. Wow. Amazing, just like they should have been made. Okay. So they're the exact specs. He hand winds everything. Yeah. They are classic pickups. There's nothing special about them, mm -hmm. but they are what they should have been. Okay. So are they, um, so the MJTs, they're typically Fender style. Telly Strats. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the the pickups are slider pickups. They're slider pickups, yeah. They're like single coils. Yeah, you're working with. Look, I've got um, you know, I've I've been through. So I've got so many pickups. Uh huh. But it, it seems to me that I'm going back a, to a traditional sound. Okay. Just because it works. Sure. You know, there, there's so many different you know um, varieties of gain out of pickups, mm -hmm. and I've always been the sort of person that gets the gain out of the amp. I very rarely use pedals, okay. distortion pedals. Yep. I use all amp gain. Okay. And um, that's the beauty of having the axe effects is I can dial in my, my amp gain and and have it there. But I really want a traditional sound out of guitar. Okay. That's why the, the gem is, um, is um, just got PAF pros. Okay, so They're kind of like a moderate output. Yeah. You're not yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy. Nothing too crazy. Yeah. Uh, and they are, uh, and the beauty is you can keep it clean. You can play a stratty sort of sound yeah, on it, or sure. you get a jazzy sound out of it, or you can pump it up. And, yeah. 
But yeah, pickups, uh, I've, I've gone really traditional lately. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. So I saw, um, just recently you got a new guitar. It's a Mark Gilbert guitar. Oh, he's a master. What, what is that about? The Three Cats. Three Cats, yeah. Well, look, he's uh, he made me a guitar a couple of years ago, and he it's it's a beautiful Telecaster-style guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, through that, I've promoted it. He sold a whole bunch out of it. Okay. And the other day, I rolled. he rolled it. I rolled up to the door and there's a guitar standing there for me going happy, you know, congratulations. Uh -huh. And so he's given me that. Wow. Just out of thank you for helping him sell some guitars. But really, he doesn't need my help. They're, they're amazing guitars. Okay. They're beautifully made, Tasmanian, all Tasmanian wood. Okay. From um, um, uh, musk wood to, uh, what's it? Black sassafras to all different sorts of woods, but he's really, really onto it. He's a master guitar builder. Mm -hmm. He's great. Him and uh, I also get like he's in Tasmania. Okay. I get all my guitars fixed and um, refretted with Frank Rabisa. He's always done my stuff. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. Yep. I love his stuff. Cool. He's built a neck, built that neck for me for okay. that guitar. Is he still making guitars? Yeah, he gets he gets he gets bogged down with everybody else's. Okay, you know, but yeah, he's still trying to do some more stuff. Yeah, especially cool. now. Yeah, great, mm. awesome. Mm. Um, you mentioned the Axe FX rig, so you've yeah. been using that. How long have you been been well, using that? I was, I think, I was one of the first people in Australia to get get one. Okay, yeah. so um, um, they uh, that has just changed my life. Yeah, wow. Um, I've got three of them. Okay, I love them. I. I've got one for the studio. I've got one that I use live, and I've also got a smaller rig, which is the Axe Eight, which is the floorboard oh, the one. the floorboard one. Yeah. Is that so the new one? So that's, that's got the new one. Yeah, and the effects that one. It's got everything in yeah, it. Yeah, cool. So um, look, when they first came out, it was exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. You know, um, I still use it for uh, a tube power amp. Okay. So I've I've had sponsorships with H uh, and K, mm -hmm. and. Um, I still use the H&K Triamp, but I only use the power amp stage oh, of that. Okay. Yep. Now, the beauty of the power amp stage is that it has three different voicings mm -hmm. for the three different amps, preamps. Oh, okay. yep. So I set it up in that way as well yep. with the Axe FX. So it's midied into the Axe FX. So it, when I go for a certain sound, it changes the power amp stage. Yeah, great. That's great. Uh, I still use guitar speakers. Yep. You know, I'm a nut. I've got boxes galore and... Um, but the Axe Effects has changed my world because it's it's all I want, and and the lovely thing about it is it's just drop and drag or or just add that sound there or tweak that there, and it's yeah. the preamps are amazing. I don't use all the um, cabinets unless I'm in the studio going direct. Okay, sure. Um, but I've started to um, write patches whereby I can plug straight into my power amp, bypass the cab, yeah. and then have another send going out of another output of the ActiveX to a cab. Oh, so okay. it can go straight to the desk. Yep, awesome. So um, it's just, you know, it has everything that I need in it as far as uh, preamps, clean, dirty, um, all the effects. Yep. I can run it in any way I want and I absolutely love it. Wow, cool. Yeah. And especially with the floor pedals, you know, you can set it up to have a patch and then turn on and off effects. Yep. Or uh, you know ha have banks galore. I can set up different gigs, different set lists, all that sort of thing. It's awesome. just it's, you know my thing is also being you know from being in the session world is to have versatility at my fingertips like that. I need to know quick. Yeah. And I've always had um, uh, effects units like rack effects units. Okay. And the Corgay three and Digitech stuff and they've always been 
the way to work because it's all in one box and I can just tweak. So when this came out and it had preamps and cabinets as well, I just went, gimme, gimme, gimme. Wow, awesome. Because yeah. yeah. one of the things, I guess some of the early modelers, even if the sounds got close, they never felt that good to play. No, that's right. And the, well, uh, look, it was a transition for me to, to, to change over to this too, because I yeah. always played with a, um, a Shure wireless system Okay. Into a tube amp, yeah. You know, and I, I my original problem was the attack. Yeah, sure. but your brain just develops. I think your brain and your fingers just develop. And as a matter of fact, it's become more um, organic. Okay. More organic for me to to play through the X effects than anything else. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there was like a physical sort of adjustment. Absolutely. In yeah. your playing. Yeah, okay. absolutely. You know, I guess a lot of people wouldn't feel it. I think from from playing through so many amps and so many uh, rigs all my life, yeah, and also having the um, the wireless thing that I got used to when I was touring, yeah, and always playing with a wireless, okay, that was another transition too because sure. the wirelesses in those days were pretty. Sh I've got digital stuff like the Line Six stuff that I use now, and it's reasonable, okay, but it was a transition changing from a tube amp preamp to the touch of the Axe FX. But once you're there, you're never going, I'm never going, look, I've got, I've got old fenders up there that are vintage, I've got, I've got two triamps, I've got, uh, I got, I've got about, I don't know how many amplifiers. I'm never going back. Yeah. I just can't see myself ever going back. Uh, it's, uh, it's not that I've gone completely digital because I uh, still use the tube power amps and yeah, stuff. Yeah, okay. But I do have a digital amp and it's fantastic. Okay. A new power amp and it's fantastic, but, um, yeah, I, I don't see myself going back. Here's a little bit of a YouTube clip Peter posted of his Mark Gilbert guitar plugged into the Axe FX. Check it out, it sounds beautiful.
Man, that's just awesome. Keep in mind that's just recorded on a smartphone and whacked up on YouTube and um, it still sounds glorious. Such beautiful playing and tone. And did you catch the Beatles reference? All right, well, that's it for our Peter Northcott interview. In fact, I do have a little bit of bonus audio. I will post that later in the week, just the last few minutes um, of our talk there. But we pretty much wrapped it up there. In fact, as I was packing up uh, my stuff, um, Pete started handing me guitars to check out. And, um, yeah, the, the guitars he mentioned in the interview, um, the, the MJT guitars, um, some vintage Les Pauls and Tellys. Uh, I played his, his 80s salmon pink ESP super strat I remember seeing him play that guitar on TV so then to have a bit of a play on it was was pretty cool it's very cool and then I promptly stole Peter's pick um, you know when you borrow from someone's pick and then you just by habit shove it in your pocket that's what I did but I've been using it on gigs ever since it's a nice big thick chunky pick which I kind of like so I might have to get me some of those ones but Peter was really generous with his time and um to have me at his home studio was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Great to meet him after hearing him play for many, many years. So I really thank him. Uh, thank him for that. All right. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening in. Uh, remember, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Stitcher and iTunes. And you can also find us at guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. Uh, you can email us even at guitarspeakpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, until next time, we'll see you later.